0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: Hello and welcome to The Health Report with me, Norman Swan. Today, artificial intelligence in the operating theatre. Not to make surgeons brighter, there is a limit to science. No, to make cancer surgery more accurate and effective. An Indigenous-run and-led pregnancy clinic in Queensland has managed to just about halve the rate of preterm births in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women. It's finding with huge implications to help close the gap. Find out more soon. Should we pay people to donate plasma in Australia? No is the usual answer, but an economist reckons it would be a good idea. And in what's been a terrible bushfire season so far, with appalling air quality, the focus has been on adults and their issues with the air. But what about babies, including babies yet to be born? The Respiratory Medicine Department of the Royal Children's Hospital in Melbourne has a many decade long international reputation for its work on infant lung problems. And this has been picked up by the Murdoch Children's Research Institute at the hospital. Sarath Ranganathan is head of respiratory medicine at the Royal Children's and heads the research group at the Murdoch. Welcome to the Health Report, Sarath.
0: Thank you very much. You're talking to a fan of the show and it's a pleasure to be here.
1: It won't make the questions any easier at all, but it's very nice of you to uh, to say so, Sarath. Um so what do we know about the infant lung and 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 bad air, if you like?
0: Um, well, not as much as we should, um, because as for most things in medicine, we focused on adults predominantly, and uh, we've often transferred that information down to young children and, and babies. But infants, uh, particularly in relation to their lungs, have a very specific physiology which potentially... Puts them at specific risk of uh, um, exposures such as pollution and, and bushfires. Uh, physiologically, uh, they are different for in a number of ways. One might be that, um, in fact, uh, babies breathe more air uh, as a proportion of their body weight than adults do—about fifty percent more. Oh, really? Yeah. And uh, so another... it's almost
1: like the exercise. You know, the, the analogy would be the exercising lung. You're just pu- pulling in and pushing out much more than than an adult would.
0: Yes, relatively speaking. So that might pose a a greater risk uh, for for infants. Um, It's also a very sensitive time because this is when the lung is developing most rapidly uh, compared to any other aspect of uh, life, any other phase of life. So it's growing? It's growing incredibly rapidly. Most of the alveolar development, the area where oxygenation occurs, actually... Takes place postnatally, not in utero,
1: and the alveoli are these little sacs which are very thin, on very thinly surrounded, um, thin coverings to allow the the exchange of gas, as you say. And really, the the lung is a spongy ma- mass of these alveoli.
0: Absolutely, um, there are approximately estimated to be about fifty million of these at birth but about 250 million in the adult lung. And most of that increase in number occurs in the first few years of life. So it's a particularly vulnerable time.
1: And do we know that pollution, smoking and other things affects that? Certainly,
0: um, we do know that uh, exposure to tobacco smoke, uh, particularly in utero exposure, has a significant impact on uh, lung function when this is measured in babies using special techniques uh, up to 20% Twenty percent reduction in lung function in some babies.
1: That was worked on at all, Children's in Western Australia uh, with Landau and Peter Luswafa a few years ago. Um, so, okay, so and that's essentially poll- pollutants passing in the mother's mm. bloodstream.
0: Yes, and uh, and the real important uh, importance attributed to that is that what we now know is that those reductions that occur in lung function early in life appear to be maintained throughout life. Uh, that's uh, also uh, findings that have been uh, drawn out from studies done in Australia.
1: So the risk here is, well, we'll come to the difference between smoking and air pollution in a minute. So the risk here is reduced lung capacity, therefore exercise capacity, what, and the increased risk of infections, what?
0: Um, well, from acute exposures, um, we believe there's a, a potentially a greater risk of infections. Um, but from chronic exposures, we think that they are likely to have these longer term, potentially longer term impacts on, on lung function. And the reason why that's important is that if you get to uh, 23 or 24 years of age, that's the best you're going to ever achieve in terms of lung function. And then it, it falls from that point. So if you have a lower starting point, there's a a threshold, a lower threshold at which you're going to start to get symptoms in adult life. And we're starting to see this in conditions such as chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, COPD.
1: So what do we know about air pollution as opposed to cigarette smoke?
0: Um, Well, uh, we're increasingly recognising the adverse effects of air pollution on respiratory health. And I probably want to make a, a slight distinction between air pollution associated with veic- vehicles um, and combustion compared to the air pollution from bush smoke from which we actually know very little. But uh, air pollution is complex. There are a number of uh, particles and gases and other volatile compounds that are present in air pollution, all of which have potential harm uh, to individuals. The specific harm to young people, we, we don't really know.
1: So, so that's a bit troubling. Mm. When you say acute versus chronic exposure, what is chronic exposure? I mean, is that two, three years? I mean, kids will be going to get almost a whole summer of uh, of lousy air in Melbourne, Sydney and Canberra, for example. Um, is that still acute exposure or is that chronic exposure?
0: Well, I think what we've been exposed to from the bushfires in uh, Victoria, at least, and probably also in New South Wales, is, is relatively acute exposure. Um, And so the side effects of that are likely to be acute symptoms of bronchitis, coughing, sore throats, wheezing, Uh, but we don't necessarily attribute any long-term side effects associated with that short-term exposure. But chronic exposure, uh, living in cities with high levels of pollution, and I should add that Melbourne, generally speaking, where I live uh, has got um, low levels of uh, pollution, Chronic exposure um, certainly does impact on lung function.
1: What's the advice for parents? I mean, we don't want to scare people stupid here, but the, um, what's the, you know, pregnant women, um, people with young kids at home, what's the advice?
0: Um, well, there are lots of sources of good advice on this and I, and I probably will just reiterate those Well, you're experts. the head of
1: respiratory mental roll <laughs> children's. I'm asking you.
0: I'm not saying I'm the best advi- advisor great. here, but um, I think the advice that's been put out recently is good advice. People should stay indoors, shut the doors and, and windows, ventilate your house when the air uh, quality is good. Um, don't exercise outside. Um, certainly for, for younger children, that's relevant. For, for babies, stay inside. Um, For older children, it is possible that they might benefit from wearing uh, an N95 or P2 mask because that protects them against the very small particles, the PM2.5s.
1: And the other answer is we need to know a bit more than we do.
0: We do, and, and obviously there's specific advice there for people who do suffer from cardiac or respiratory conditions. It's important there to have your medicines in stock, available close by, and so that you can uh, follow your treatment plans.
1: Sarah, thanks for joining us. You're welcome. Thank you very much for having me. Professor Sarah Therangonikin is the head of uh, respiratory medicine at the Royal Children's Hospital in Melbourne and heads the Respiratory Dis- Diseases Group at the Murdoch Children's Research Institute. This is RN's Health Report, and I'm Norman Swan. Preterm premature birth rates amongst Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women are more than 50% higher than non-Indigenous Australians and contributes significantly to the 240% gap in child death rates. And most of these deaths occur in the first year of life. And that gap is actually increasing. So if you could do something about preventing preterm births in indigenous um, populations, it would make a huge difference potentially. Well, a study from Brisbane has reported a halving of the preterm birth rate in a pregnancy service run and led by Aboriginal people. With me now is Sue Kilday, who's Professor and Co-Director of the Molly Wardaguga Research Centre at Charles Darwin University, and Christy Wattigo, who's a Project Officer with Family Services at the Institute of Urban Indigenous Health, which is a large network of Aboriginal medical services in Brisbane. Welcome to you both.
2: Thank you. Thank you.
1: And I believe that one of the sponsors of this project has recently passed away.
3: Yes, thank you, Norman. And, and of course, first, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners on the land on which we meet today. And yes, it is with great sadness that I also acknowledge the passing of one of Queensland's great Indigenous leaders, Ani Pam Mam. Um, Annie always led with three words in mind, which was compassion, commitment and dedication. And of course, we'll continue to honour Annie Pam's legacy with the work we do. Um, so it's exciting to be here today to talk about this incredible program that's producing real health outcomes for our community here in South East Queensland.
1: Christy, Christy, you use this service for your own child.
3: I did, for my third baby. Um, So
1: how did it differ from what you experienced before?
3: Sure. With the first baby, um, Thomas, um, he was born through the public system. And then, um, unfortunately, I was um, heavily overweight and um, the age of 35 with my second. So I was referred to a private obstetrician with my second. And it felt very transactional, Um, Norman. It was very much, you come in, you say hello, um, very little eye contact, no use of my name. And... um, you would nod to the obstetrician and jump up on the table and she'd have a quick touch of your belly and you'd exchange 125 bucks and then move on. And unfortunately, the day that um, our baby was born was um, due to um, a a planned Caesar and again, very transactional. So I felt like the birth of my second baby was was a little bit underwhelming. um, And I struggled with that a little bit. So With our third baby, thankfully we had the opportunity to experience this program and uh, where I was able to connect with a team of health clinicians and community members that allowed me to really understand what it is that I needed uh, emotionally and physically to ensure that I was physically um, fit to do the best that I could do for my baby and carry for him for as long as I possibly could um, and giving him the best um, start to life. So it was through connecting with these women where I felt comfortable to, to share my inner thoughts and my inner fears and to be really comfortable about being vulnerable. Um, and then they were able to truly help me with um, whatever support I need to be the best mother that I could be.
1: Sukilday tell us about the framework you used to design, you know, just talk about the service, how it's designed, how it works. And uh, we've, you know, we've heard from Christy tangibly how it felt different and engaged her more.
2: Sure. It's um, it's an evidence-based service. So we got the best available evidence for how we thought we might be able to make a difference for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander mothers and babies. And so because of that, it's a complex intervention. So there's quite a lot of moving parts and um, that makes it uh, difficult to explain in one sentence, but I'll give it a go. It's um, we redesigned. We concentrated on redesigning the maternity service, so it was a co-design with all the stakeholders at the table. And um, part of that redesign was to increase continuity across the whole period from pregnancy right through to birth and postnatal um, period. So that was through a midwifery group practice, but it was an enhanced um, midwifery group practice. So it wasn't the same as what we what we have. For, so are these Aboriginal um, midwives. Uh, Well, no. Part of our strategy, there's only 230 Aboriginal midwives in Australia, so part of our strategy and part of what we're doing here is trying to grow the Indigenous um, midwifery workforce. So we've got a, we've developed a framework called RISE, the first bit's redesign, which is what I was telling you about. The second is investing in the workforce and that's really trying to grow the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander maternal infant health workforce, but also make sure our non-Indigenous workforce is working in a really culturally safe manner and that they've got everything sort of, all the resources wrapped around them and working with them so that they're doing the right thing as well. The S is for strengthening families, and I think Christy will probably talk a little bit about that in a minute. And the embedding community ownership and governance was really important. As you know, Norman, um, our maternity services across Australia are very um, – they operate mostly out of the tertiary service, uh, the big city hospitals – And what we tried to do with this was get more control back into the whole maternity journey for the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander community themselves. And was
1: it owned by the community in the way that the Indigenous, uh, the Urban Institute is, the Institute for Urban Indigenous Health is?
2: No. No. at, we have a partnership. So we had a um, we started off with a, a big world cafe where all the stakeholders came together and then um, partners put up their hands to say whether they'd like to join together to join resources and try and develop this gold standard that we wanted to see developed. And the Institute for Urban Indigenous Health was one of the partners. The Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Community Health Service at Wollongabba was another one of the partners. And the MARTA Hospital... Um, large tertiary maternity hospital with about 10,000 babies a year, was another partner. So the three partners formed a partnership and they then, the steering committee governed the service and made decisions about resourcing and how the service would run and how it would operate. And we did end up moving into a community-based hub, which is owned by the Institute.
1: Now, you have virtually halved the rate of um, preterm births. Down to roughly the same rate that's in the general community. I mean that's an extraordinary finding. What actually tangibly happened? I mean, we've heard from Christy, we don't have a lot of time left, unfortunately, but we've heard from Christy the engagement process, but what was the result of the engagement process? What actually happened? Is it better blood pressure control, not smoking very much? Um, what, what's the story there in terms of what actually was the changed behavior that made a difference to preterm delivery delivery?
2: Yeah, the $50 million question, Like we're so excited about this. So we think, well, what, what we know is that women are coming in very early. They have heard about the service, They the reputation is good, they come, and they're sort of buying in. So not only do they come, but they form relationships with all of the team. So that's not just the midwife. It might be the family support worker, it might be the driver, it could be uh, anyone in the team, any one of the members. But through that trusting relationship comes, um, you know, the the yarning about – actually, I'll hand up – to Christy because she knows this very well about how how it sort
3: of works on the ground I think one of the things too to note is that there's never been a referral system it's just um, word of mouth across the community here in South East Queensland that my sister gave birth through this awesome program and therefore I want to be a part of it and it it allows the community to be able to engage with healthcare very early in their pregnancy and want to actually um, be a part of this So and it comes back to if we are engaging early and if we are finding that connection with our community then And we will be far more trusting and more open about any support or issues that we may have, um, which stop us or or put put barriers in our way from engaging with healthcare.
1: Yeah, and and it sounds absolutely marvellous. And and Sue, just very briefly, scale up is now the issue, if you know what to do. It's not easy to set up, but presumably this can spread
2: hundred percent. That's exactly what we'd like to see. As you know, it takes about 17 years for research to get into practice. We can't afford that kind of a gap. So what we need now is very large scale implementation. And that could be done through a large scale implementation study because it's not going to happen easily and it's not going to happen overnight. So I think we need a very large scale implementation study, but we need government to come to the party and understand that this is prevention. It's always hard to get money funding for preventative um, programs, but this is probably one of the most important programs that you could invest in across Australia, really, because if you look at preterm birth, it impacts school readiness, it impacts um, employment outcomes, chronic diseases in adulthood. Like if it was a pill, you'd give it out to everyone tomorrow.
1: Well, let's check back later in a little while and see how you're going. So cool, Danny. Thank you very much indeed. And thanks uh, to Christy Wattico as well.
2: Thank you. Thank you.
1: Sue so cool. Day is Professor and Co-Director of the M- M- Molly Wardagua Research Centre at Charles Darwin University and Christy Wotigo, I should say, is a Project Officer with Family Services at the Institute of Urban Indigenous Health. Artificial intelligence appears to be making a difference to brain surgery while the patient is actually on the table. A US study has found that computer-based diagnosis of brain tumours using sophisticated algorithms can be as accurate as the best neuropathologists, potentially saving time in theatre and giving neurosurgeons more confidence in the extent to which they've removed the tumour. Daniel Orringer is Associate Professor of Neurosurgery at New York University Langone Health, and I spoke to him earlier.
4: My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me.
1: What tumour are we talking about here? Is it glioblastoma, the most malignant form of uh, brain tumour?
4: That's exactly right. And technology that we've developed actually applied to the 10 most common brain tumours. Glioblastoma, of course, is the most feared of those. But we've developed technology that helps surgeons make a diagnosis across different types of brain tumours in the operating room at the bedside within minutes.
1: Take us into theatre. Describe what's going on and the dilemma faced by the surgeon at a certain point in the surgery.
4: The primary goal of any brain tumor operation is to establish the type of tumor that we're dealing with. That's essential for making decisions. And as surgeons, we can see when we've encountered abnormal tissue, but an analysis of that tissue under the microscope is required to differentiate among the different types. Conventionally, the way that we do that is by taking... Tissue out of the patient and sending it to what's called a frozen section lab that is connected from the operating room. And in that lab, the tissue is processed and a technician creates slides for a pathologist to review. And the pathologist calls back into the operating room with a diagnosis.
1: In the meantime, you're standing there twiddling your thumbs and the patient's under an anesthetic.
4: Exactly. And that process can take 30 to 45 minutes. And what we've designed is a system that eliminates a lot of the cumbersome portions of that workflow. And instead of using a separate lab, we're using a breakthrough in optics called simulated Raman histology to allow us to use fresh tissue at the bedside to create a virtual histologic image or microscopic image of the tissue in just several minutes.
1: Just describe what happens, because normally, as you say, you take a lump of tissue out of the tumour. It gets frozen and then they slice the frozen section into microscopic slices, book it under the microscope and see whether you know what the features are, whether it's glioblastoma or a meningioma or something like that. So you take your lump of tissue under this simulated histology, what happens to that lump of tissue?
4: So you described the conventional process very well. Our workflow is very straightforward. Tissue comes out of the patients using a surgical instrument, it's placed onto a carrier slide. And that goes directly into a slot in an imager. And then we close the door and the imaging happens automatically.
1: So through a thick section. So it's, it's a lump of tissue, not a thin slice.
4: That's right. The architecture of the tissue is not destroyed. And based on the light that's passing through the tissue, we can generate a virtual histologic image. After we have the image, it needs to be interpreted. And what we've developed, because there is a gap in the knowledge of surgeons in general, is an artificial intelligence method based on image classification that can predict tumor diagnosis based entirely on the digital images that we generate in the operating room. And given the power of this algorithm, we're able to achieve expert-level diagnostic classification that rivals the accuracy of some of the best neuropathologists on the planet. But as you alluded to, there are errors that are made. And we found in our study of 278 patients, there were a number of errors that the algorithm made, and there were a number of errors that the pathologist made. What was really interesting is that the errors that were made by the pathologist and the errors that were made by the algorithm were entirely non-overlapping, meaning that we can imagine a way of the pathologist using this algorithm to achieve almost perfect accuracy.
1: But how does it work the other way when you're just a surgeon in the operating room? You've got the virtual histology done. The AI is telling you it's okay. It's not a glioblastoma. You haven't got the luxury of a neuropathologist to then look over your shoulder and say, sorry, chum, it is.
4: In the United States, hundreds of hospitals that perform brain tumor surgery don't have a neuropathologist on staff. And what our study suggests is that in those settings, they can use the algorithm to help close that gap.
1: And if you're operating in a major centre where there is a neuropathologist, what's the practice? Because in Australia, my guess is that most potential glioblastomas are operated on in major centres where you would have neuropathology on call.
4: Yes. Even our colleagues here, who I would consider world-class, operate at an error rate of approximately 5 to 10%, which is quite admirable, except if you're one of those patients that's in the 5 to 10%. The hope is that with the algorithm we might be able to boost the accuracy of intraoperative diagnosis closer to 100%.
1: Once the tumor has been removed, particularly in something difficult like glioblastoma, the difficulty is knowing whether you've got the margins clear. Does this help?
4: Yeah. so, So this is why I got into this business in the first place. As a medical student, I appreciated the challenge that neurosurgeons have in the complete removal of a brain tumor. Differentiating healthy brain from brain that's been infiltrated by a tumor is very, very challenging. Neurosurgeons have to guess at the margins. But to me, that wasn't good enough. And my practice now is very different because I have a system that allows me to objectively determine the degree of tumor cell infiltration in the tissue that I'm operating on. For example, if we're in an area of the brain that is not essential for motor or language function, my goal is to, and I'm obsessive about this, is to remove as much of the tumor as I possibly can, even down to the point where I'm removing individual tumor cells that I detect on the microscope that I wouldn't otherwise be able to do. So having the system at the bedside allows a level of accuracy in brain tumour surgery that was not previously possible.
1: Thank you very much indeed that's been fascinating. Yeah
4: I'm happy to talk to you about it, it was, it was a great conversation
1: That was uh, an interview with Daniel Orringer, an Associate Professor of Neurosurgery at New York University of Langone Health the situation in Australia is a bit different because it's mostly neuropathologists on but it does increase the accuracy when the neuropathologist works with the AI as well and it makes the operation better because they can actually test the margins to make sure they've removed the tumour as a whole. We'll have a longer version of that interview on our, our website Website so that you can podcast that. Before the Christmas break, we ran a story on blood donations and how to increase the supply by improving the experience of donors. But there's another form of donation, which is plasma, the fluid that carries the blood cells and is incredibly valuable because it contains all kinds of substances that can be used therapeutically. And plasma, too, appears to be in short supply. Paying plasma donors is a way of dealing with this, but Australian blood banks have hated the idea because they reckon it'll make the blood supply less safe because, to be blunt, you might get donors whose risk profile is poor. Robert Sloanham is Professor of Economics at the University of Sydney. He disagrees and has recently put forward his views on paper. Welcome to The Health Report, Robert. Thank you for having me. So how
5: do you view the problem that needs to be solved here in economic terms? Well, the problem is a market failure. Right now, we're relying on volunteer donors and so there's no accurate signal that the market has for exactly how much we need. Uh, and it, it's an acute problem. We have in Australia that right now we have to import half of our plasma from um, outside of, of the country where mostly it's coming from almost essentially all is coming from paid donors in the U.S. And in fact, this is true for most countries in the world. They're receiving plasma from the paid donors in the U.S. Uh, and So the United
1: States is
5: is serving the world. The United States is the world supplier of plasma. Um, Austria has started collecting with paid donors, and they are getting into the market to provide. But the, the problem is- You said Austria. Austria is also. Right. Um, the problem is quite uh, severe, though. The plasma uses are increasing uh, yearly quite dramatically. In the last 15 years, they've been growing at about 7 to 10% annually, and the supply has not been keeping up. And therefore, prices gone up. Uh, so, 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 so far, no. Um, so far, the um, the supply coming out of the U.S. has been increasing at a rate, but it it is in the last several years, from a health standpoint, actually starting to be a serious problem. So, there's evidence in the last few years that dosages that people use from, particularly from pharmaceutical products, um, are either being delayed or there's longer time periods between what is optimally recommended. Uh, the amount of the dosage is decreasing, and increasingly, there's now discussions, particularly in the U.S. markets, around um, how do you prioritize who's going to get the plasma? And that's not a place, I think, for a health system where we want to head.
1: And the main medications that we're talking about here are immunoglobulins, which boost the, the immune system.
5: That, that, that is right. So so the IGs are one of the main proteins that's coming out of plasma, but it's also used in a lot of others for blood clotting. It's used in cancer, uh, organ transplants, uh, and just immunoglobulin is the main one, but the uses of all the other proteins are also increasing quite rapidly. So how, what's the evidence that payment in
1: Australia would make a difference?
5: So I don't think Australians are different than the rest of the world. So we, we've done an enormous amount of research around the world and we've done our research and been publishing starting at least 10 years ago now. And the evidence that we've found has now been being robustly found to hold with many other research teams that are involved. And the evidence is uh, very clear that when you offer compensation of some form uh, for blood donations, you're seeing dramatic increases in the number of people that are willing to come and donate. Uh, just as one example, one of our studies, we gave $10 gift cards to donors in the US and we saw a 30% increase in in uh, the number of people who showed up. So it's uh, a small amount of money. It's It can be very small. The U.S. In the US, the market is currently paying donors uh, typically about $50 Australian per plasma donation. And that seems to so far be clearing the world market.
1: And just to be clear here, the technology is you 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 take off the whole blood, spin it down, take the plasma off, and then return the blood. You you return the blood cells to the person, so they're not becoming anemic. They can yeah. and they can give quite a few donations. We can give more donations than, than whole blood.
5: That's a, that's exactly right. The the process is called plasmapheresis, uh, and you can typically donate in Australia. It would be considered to be healthy once every three weeks to do this. And you're exactly right. They take out the the the, the whole blood. They separate out the red blood cells that are inserted back into the donor. So it's a much healthier process actually than taking a whole blood donation.
1: Um, What about safety? So the argument has been that um, if you pay people, then people who might be drug users, for example, might come in and lie about the fact that they're drug users and you're going to get unknown viruses in the system and it's less safe. And they got a lot of publicity around about the time of HIV where reputedly the American blood supply was less safe than the Australian blood supply.
5: So 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 that's an excellent point and I think the fact that you've brought up the uh, the AIDS crisis is exactly we're living in the past with this type of argument. So when this original argument about the safety was brought up it was brought up in the 60s and at that time there was very difficult issues around testing. So it was either either not feasible or extremely expensive expensive to 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 test a sample. Uh, for almost every, and, and I mean, in the order of a 99.999% type of range of anything that we know that's out there, it's it's very cheap, inexpensive, and, and we're testing it already anyway. A second point also is this argument that it's going to attract people that might be of a greater risk. I think is pretty uh, fallacious, um, in in the sense uh, fallacious in the sense that um, you don't have to actually compensate them for the donation. You compensate them to just show up. We've done study after study in this direction and we do not find that people just show up and then say, oh, gee, I don't qualify. They show up, they're given the donation, uh, they're given their oh, compensation before, the needle goes in the arm. before they even fill out any of the information. Robert, thank you. We'll watch this with interest.
1: Robert Sloanham is Professor of Economics at the University of Sydney. You've been listening to The Health Report with me, Norman Swan. I hope you can join me again next week.
0: You've been listening to an ABC podcast.